the Baseball Lifer Podcast is on the air. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Baseball Lifer Podcast. This is Don Wardlow, your Baseball Lifer in Residence. And it's been an interesting week. Got a couple things to talk to you about before we bring on our guest. Before that, there's a couple of things I'd like you to hear. There was a game on Sunday in Toronto between the Seattle Mariners and the Toronto Blue Jays. And it went to 10 innings. And in the top of the 10th, Cal Raleigh was up at the plate for the Mariners. He hit a home run earlier in the game. And I'm playing this for you because I like to hear an announcer keeps his cool and can be dispassionate in a moment of great excitement. Zach Pop out of Brampton, Canada. At the University of Kentucky, right-hander leans in from the first base side. A big guy at 6'4", 220. Here's the 1-0 to Cal, switch hitter, batting left. Long look at Gino in the pitch. Swung on, drive to deep right, there he goes again! Cal Raleigh, everybody! A two-run homer second in as many at-bats, and the Mariners have a 10-8 lead! Hey now, hey now! That is super impressive. He got a fastball, leaned on it, and got it out of here. So I was kidding about Dave Sims keeping his cool on that one. You know, there's the Vince Scully School of Broadcasting, and then there's the Russ Hodges School. And Russ, famously in the Bobby Thompson home run moment, yelled repeatedly, the Giants win the pennant, the Giants win the pennant. I love that kind of broadcasting. I used to love Harry Carey. And I listened to more Mariner games than I normally would because I know Dave Sims is at the controls. and The Mariners were behind in a big way in that game on Sunday, and they tied it and ultimately won it on that home run that you heard by Cal Raleigh. We were able to bring you that courtesy of the Seattle Mariners and AM710, K-I-R-O, their flagship radio station in Seattle. As we continue on the Baseball Lifer podcast, later on we're going to have our guest, Dell Leonard-Jones. He took the poem, Casey at the Bat, and extended it into a historical novel, which is called At the Bat. And we will talk about that. But before we do, we thought we would let you hear, in its entirety, the original poem, Casey at the Bat, written by Lawrence Ayer. Let's sit back and give a listen to that old poem. Casey at the Bat, written by Ernest Lawrence Thayer in 1888. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood four to two with but one inning left to play. And then when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a sickly silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go in deep despair, the rest clung to that hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought, if only Casey could but get a whack at that, they'd put up even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey 
as did also Jimmy Blake. And the former was a Lulu, and the latter was a cake. So upon this stricken multitude, grim melancholy sat, for there seemed but little chance of Casey's getting to the bat. But Flynn let drive a single to the wonderment of all, and Blake, the much despised, he tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted, and they saw what had occurred, there was Jimmy safe at second, and Flynn a hug in third. Then from five thousand throats and more, there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled in the valley, it rattled in the dell, it knocked upon the mountain and recoiled upon the flat. For Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was pride on Casey's bearing and a smile on Casey's face. And when responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat. No stranger in the crowd could doubt, t'was Casey at the bat. 10,000 eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. 5,000 tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then while the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, defiance gleamed in Casey's eye. A sneer curled Casey's lip. And now the leather-covered sphere came hurtling through the air. But Casey stood a-watching it in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. From the benches black with people, there went up a muffled roar, like the beating of the storm waves on a stern and distant shore. Kill him, kill the umpire, shouted someone on the stand, and it's likely they'd have killed him had not Casey raised his hand. With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage shone. He stilled the rising tumult, he bade the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the spheroid flew. But Casey still ignored it, and the umpire said, Strike two! Fraud! cried the maddened thousands, and Echo answered, Fraud! But one scornful look from Casey, and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain. And they knew that Casey wouldn't let that ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence, his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball. And now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. Somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. Thank you. So now you've heard the poem, Casey at the Bat, written by Lawrence Thayer and read by Tim Wiles, who used to be director of research at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And we were able to get that recording thanks to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And you can certainly take a look at a lot of 
other very interesting presentations they've got on their YouTube page. There'll be a link to that in the podcast notes. Coming up next, we've got Dell Leonard Jones, the man who took the poem Casey at the Bat and made a historical novel out of it. That novel is called At the Bat. Dell Leonard Jones is who you'll hear after a word from our sponsor, Portland Computer Services. I am having such a problem at work. This is the second time this month I have had two computers down and I can't get my computer company to come to the office and fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when the computers are not working properly. I need somebody that can come out, see what's wrong, and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They have been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860. Courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about it on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of computer services. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here, and my guest is Del Leonard Jones. And when I did the opening, I read the poem Casey at the Bat for you and our audience. And now, Del, you've written the book called At the Bat, The Strikeout That Shamed America. Let's talk about that. Sounds good. I'm sure you've read the poem yourself as a boy, as a lot of baseball fans do. And how did you get the idea to build a historical novel based on that poem? Well, uh, my father, like many in the in the greatest generation, I'm a boomer, so my father was a World War II veteran. And people in that generation, for some reason, they learned, they memorized poetry in school. It was just a common thing. And so he had the Casey at the Bat uh, memorized. He had a lot of Robert Service poems like the Cremation of Sam McGee memorized. And one thing, you know, I set up a Google Alerts on Casey at the Bat. And the thing I get the most in the news are obituaries from people of that age group who the poem was so important to them that when their life was boiled down into like six paragraphs, uh, Casey at the Bat showed up. So I was I was raised with my father memorizing Casey at the Bat, and I just thought, uh, you know, I never did memorize it all the way through, but I thought, well, I'll try to write a novel about it. When I when I retired from journalism, I decided to write a novel about uh, based on that story. And before we get back to the book at the Bat, the strikeout that shamed America, you did start out as a sports writer before becoming a business writer. But tell me about your sports writing experience early on 
Yeah, I always, you know, I grew up uh, uh, reading the Sporting News and Sports Illustrated. The best, uh, the best writing at that time in all of journalism was in Sports uh, Illustrated, and so I grew up r reading that. And I, I always wanted to be a sports writer, and I started out as a sport, a small town sports writer, uh, through three newspapers, and then this is a great baseball analogy. But then I decided I wanted to get to a major publication. And the fastest way, just like they say, the fastest way to the major leagues in baseball is to become a catcher. Uh, I was told that the fastest way to get to a major publication in journalism is to become a business writer. And so I had an interest in business. So I went to school and got my MBA and then switched over to business writer. And lo and behold, that that worked out. Uh, I probably never would have gotten promoted to uh, USA Today as a sports writer, but I, I made it as a business writer in the money section. So let's talk a little bit about the book and the, the poem that led up to it. The entire idea, as I see it, is before a certain time, a strikeout really was something you tried to avoid doing. Guys like Joe Sewell might strike out in single digits in a whole season. And even as late as Tony Gwynn, he very rarely struck out, and it, it was a very different world, not only in that way, but in many other ways in the game of baseball. Yeah, that's a good point, and I've never really even thought of it that way, but uh, it it probably was a, a larger badge of dishonor at that time. The, the poem was written in 1888, and that, that was kind of the dawn of professional baseball, and uh you know, I never thought about it that way. I mean, there you can tell from the poem that there was a lot of dishonor in Casey striking out, but I always thought it was because he struck out uh, with the game on the line. I mean, the impossible happened. Everybody, you know, they were they, he was he was number fifth in the in the order in that inning, and everybody just assumed that if he ever got up, he would win the game, but that the the odds were so low that he would ever get up to bat because he had kind of some some weak hitters ahead of him. So I always thought that the that the strikeout was was more about that you know the tension builds through the poem and back then you know this this poem was originally written as filler back in newspapers in that day if you if you ever look at them they're just gray it's all, it's they're all type you know six or eight columns across strictly gay, uh, gray and they didn't have wire services back there to you know if they had a hole in the newspaper they couldn't get the Associated Press story or something in there. And so they would they would use things called filler like recipes or and and one of the fillers they used was poems. So um, uh, Ernest Thayer, who wrote the poem, he worked for the San Francisco Examiner at the time. Uh, I I assume that he wrote that, you know, off the cuff. They probably said, oh, we've got this hole at the bottom of this page. And that's where the poem originally ran was at the bottom of a page. And uh, and they probably said, you know, we need something to fill this hole with. And so I think he just ripped that off in no time. And you can kind of tell because uh, I kept hearing that this poem was in the San Francisco Examiner, you know, I had the date, everybody said, and, and, but I could, you know, I talked to baseball historians and I said, have you ever seen the original newspaper with a poem in it? And they, they admitted, no, I, I never have. So uh, through, through uh, University of California, Berkeley, I actually found uh, the newspaper and, and there it was at the bottom of the page. And, and another evidence that this was written uh, off the cuff was uh, 
the 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 player Jimmy Blake that's in the poem. In one place he is called Jimmy Blake, and in another place in the poem he is called Johnny Blake. So that just tells me that he uh, that Ernest there never even took much time to even proofread his own poem because he used two different first names. And you go back and I mean if you read you read Casey at the bat and uh, and there's several versions of it, just like minor differences of it. But I've never read uh, a version of Casey at the Bat that that used that original Jimmy Blake and Johnny Blake, and uh, and so and and he was so ashamed. Ernest there uh, was so ashamed of the poem. I don't know if he's ashamed of it, but he didn't even really want credit for it. He actually he he named it Finn at the bottom was P H I N is how he signed the poem. He didn't even want his name attached to it. He never made a cent off of it. Uh, the the uh, actor. DeWolf Hopper, who uh, he was kind of a B actor, wasn't going anywhere. And he uh, memorized the poem and set it on stage in New York uh, one evening. And there just happened to be a couple of baseball teams in attendance. And at, when he finished the poem, the players stood on their chairs and applauded. And then he went on to recite the poem. Uh, he thinks 10,000 times. Some historians think it's more like 40,000 times. And it just it just made his career one of the earliest recordings. You can still find it. Uh, you can find DeWolf Hopper's original recording. Uh, if you just Google it or, or go to YouTube, you can hear his original recording of, of Casey at the Bat. I don't think it was the original recording at the time in 1888 that he said it. I think it was when he recited it later. Uh, but uh, but that made him famous. Ernest there, the, the author of Casey at the Bat, went nowhere with the poem. But the actor, it, it basically cemented his career. And so much was new then. Recording technology was new. Even the most basic improvement wasn't made until the 1920s. So a recording from, say, 1910, you wouldn't know the difference between a recording from 1890. Whenever Mr. Hopper made it, it this was such a new technology. And baseball itself was new. It wasn't the game of Harry Wright and his 1869 Cincinnati Red Stockings. This was a different game even by 1888. Yeah, it changed it changed constantly in those early days. They were uh constantly changing even the numbers of balls and strikes that were allowed. I think there there was always this attempt to balance offense and defense and the way they did it back then was like uh sometimes it would take 5 balls to walk and the next season it would be 4. Uh, because they had too much offense, you know, too much offense with five balls. So the ru the rules of the game were were exactly changing all the time. Uh, the pitcher at that time, at the game was in 1888, actually didn't stand on a rubber. They actually could run up to the rubber and throw the ball at that time. I think that went out fairly soon after that. But it's just amazing. I mean, I mean, the terminology in Casey at the bat, you almost have to be a you know, if you're not a baseball fan. There's some words in there that you probably wouldn't get, but that terminology has maintained its way. I mean, a, a modern day reader can understand all the words uh, in Casey at the bat if you're a baseball fan. Uh, but the game itself uh, really has changed. And you're talking about the recordings. I think it was gramophones that they actually recorded on back then. And there were people, people, maybe rich people had gramophones, but most people would go into something like an arcade or something where you would go in and you would put in your penny or something and you'd have headphones and you would just listen to music or poetry or whatever. That's how it was listened to back then.
on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here with Dale Leonard Jones. And which of the two books that you've done came first, Sam McGee or At the Bat? Uh, I did Sam McGee first because that was my father's favorite poem. I think I originally started Casey at the Bat uh, and then did uh, didn't finish it, did uh, Cremation of Sam McGee and, and came back and finished Casey at the Bat. I might not have mentioned Sam McGee except for one thing. Gene Shepard, the late humorist, satirist, did the most amazing recitation of the cremation of Sam McGee. And if you've never heard it, it's up on YouTube. I can promise you that. It is amazing to listen to. How, how did you decide to expand these things where did the ideas come from a to expand sam mcgee and b to expand at the bat into full novels uh you know like i said these poems were kind of in, ingrained in me early on but also i've i've always considered myself a pretty good writer but because i was a journalist i never found myself like really good at like inventing uh, a story like a novel length story I, I i just imagined it would be hard uh, to invent, uh, you know, a 250-page book all on its own. So the poems actually gave me the story. The stories, both uh, Sam McGee and Casey at the Bat, are our stories. They're called ballads uh, that give you a, a start to a finish. And uh, and with Casey at the Bat, I'd, I'd had some umpiring experience at, at kind of a low level. So I, I kind of had the feeling of what, what the umpire was i mean the umpire is a pretty major uh player in the in the poem and i kind of had a feel for when they said kill the umpire killed the umpire you know i kind of had a feel for what that was like so i said well i'm gonna i'm I'm gonna write the the novel from the umpire's point of view and uh i, I thought that worked out uh pretty well because i had a good feel for it and then and then when i and then when i finished the novel i didn't think the umpire quite had the right personality. So in my in my next write through, I may, I gave him uh, Aspergers. Uh, I mean, nobody nobody knew what the word Aspergers meant uh, back in 1888, but just by kind of like reading about the character of the umpire, uh, you can tell that tell that's what he had. And it's kind of a it's kind of a uh, a great condition for umpiring. Umpiring basically takes uh, focus, uh, which people with Aspergers normally have. And and it also takes kind of a, uh, you know, tough skin uh, where probably you don't take a lot of things personally, which is another uh, common thing uh, of somebody with Asperger's. So the umpire in, in the novel has Asperger's uh, and there's a couple of other characters in the novel that were actually people, real life people at that time. We could get into it if you want. There's like Cap Anson's uh, in, in the novel, uh, Fleet, Fleetwood Walker who was the last uh, black player in the major leagues until Jackie Robinson, or at least until, you know, they recently added the statistics of the Negro leagues into, uh, and they've essentially become major league players. But until Jackie Robinson, uh, Fleetwood Walker, who was a college educated uh, uh, black guy uh, who actually got after his career, he actually uh, faced a, a murder trial it was called the trial of the century. It was like right at the end of the 1890s. And it was a very highly publicized uh, murder trial. that was a lot like OJ Simpson. And his defense was basically that uh, 
you know, some some guys came, some Irish guys came out of the bar and just started uh, slandering him and started a fight, and one of them wound up dead. And so he he was actually acquitted of that murder. Uh, and but just like O.J. Simpson, like a year later, he was convicted of of, of a, a mail fraud or something like that, some something minor, just like O.J. Simpson was. So I just found it like a really unique. Uh, and uh, another character, I mean, there, another character in the book is the only umpire in history who has ever gotten kicked out of the game uh, out of Major League Baseball. His name was Dick Higgum. And uh, he was accused with, you know, they can find little evidence of it now, but he was accused of of gambling. They, they said he would wire, you know, a friend of his, buy all the lumber you can uh, when, the, when this team was going to win. Back then, the umpires typically umpired you know, in, in their hometown. So they were umpiring the same team over and over again. And so he was, he was kicked out of baseball for that. I actually talked to his great grandson who is attempting to clear his name. Uh, he's written a couple of articles about how, how Dick Higgum never did uh, participate in gambling. And he was uh, wrongly accused of that, but he's the, he's the only umpire that's ever been kicked out of the game. Now, as you created this story, did you make Mr. Higgum the umpire who was at the plate when Mighty Casey strode to the plate? No, I actually made him a mentor of uh, of the umpire who struck out Casey. He's a he's a fairly major character in the book, but he's basically uh, he got kicked out of the game, and so he's moved and changed his name, and and is kind of like in hiding. He hasn't gone back into umpiring because he's been kicked out. But he's he's kind of the mentor. Of, of this rising umpire that is behind the plate and Fleetwood Walker is the, I make him the catcher who uh, at that time uh, he'd, I think it was 84 was the last time he played major league baseball. And then he was, he was banned. Black players weren't really banned at that time. It's just that the, the owners just agreed not to sign any black players. And so he couldn't get signed. And so I have him. The book takes takes place in in Stockton, California, which is uh, one of two cities that there's a big debate about where the poem, where this game actually took place. And one of them is in Stockton, California. So I have uh, Fleetwood Walker moving to like a California league uh, because he's been banned uh, from the major leagues, uh, and and he's pretending to be a player from Mexico who knows very little English and. Uh, and he's and he's behind the plate uh, pretending he's uh, from Mexico uh, as the catcher. And so, you know, a lot, a lot of a lot of the things in the book are are fictional, but a lot of them are based on fact as well. Which is a tactic that Brock Yates has done in his book about the Indy 500. He mixes in a great deal of fact with a fictional character to be the narrator. Now, you had said to me. Um, not only was Stockton uh, considered possibly a candidate for Mudville, wasn't there a town in Massachusetts that also said they were Mudville? Yeah, they both laid claim to it. Uh, There's actually a suburb up in that area that, that was named Mudville. And the debate is because the author, Ernest, there, he was from Massachusetts. So he was probably uh, aware of Mudville. and But at the time he wrote the poem... He was uh, with the San Francisco Examiner, uh, and so and 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 a lot of people think that that uh, Mudville was Stockton. I guess Stockton had a nickname, Mudville, which I never could figure out. I think Stockton is is fairly dry and deserty, so I don't know. May, maybe it was just kind of a play on words that it never rained in Stockton, so they called it Mudville. Uh, but th- those are the two 
places that lay claim to it. And I had, I kind of had to pick one of them. And, and so I went with Stockton because uh, that allowed me to kind of like move the players out. You know, most of the major league teams were in the East at that time, uh, no further West than Chicago. And so I had all these people that were kind of running, running from things that have happened in their life. Uh, I thought California would be a good place to put them. There wouldn't be major league ball until the Eisenhower years in California, which it, it it's I mean, it's understandable, but it seems like a shame because it's uh, something that part of the country could have used a lot sooner. Yeah, I think it was probably a transportation issue. Uh, it just it probably, you know, for a team to travel from the East Coast of California by train would just was prohibitive. Uh, so it probably wasn't until there were there was air transportation that they moved to California, the Dodgers and the Giants. Talking with Dale Leonard Jones about his book, At the Bat, The Strikeout That Shamed America. Having written the book and having immersed yourself in the 1880s in, in that part of baseball, what do you think when you watch a game now and it seems like everything is walk, strikeout, or home run? What happened to singles, doubles, and triples? Yeah, I guess that that goes on. I can't think of the name of the oh the uh, money ball. I think it kind of like goes back to that. They they started able to run these statistics and and found out that bunts and and things like that uh, were just counterproductive, which uh, really changed the game. Uh, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember when when players bunted all the time. But you know, somebody would get a single, and unless it was like a really good hitter behind them, the next batter typically bunted. And uh, now you never see. I, I think the only people that bunt now are pitchers, and and uh, and they're and they're on their way out as as uh, we got all designated hitters now. So yeah, that so that that has changed. So I I think it's basically uh, statistics. I mean, they would rather have a player strike out twice as often if he hits twice as many home runs. Uh, statistically, that wins more games. And a guy like Joey Gallo, who could strike out 200 times in a season, he wouldn't be allowed on the Mudville Nine. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was considered really, really counterproductive uh, at that time. And one one thing that's really changed is is umpiring. I found out that umpires back then uh, basically didn't have the power to eject players; they only had the power to find them, and so. Uh, and and the and the team owners actually liked uh, you know rhubarb. It was almost like like hockey at the time. And actually, it like boosted the gate if if you know there were uh, fights out on the field a lot. And uh, so umpires really didn't have a lot of control over that. All they could do was fine players. So and then and then the owners would a lot of times pay the fine for the player because they they wanted them to do it. So it was it was a, a rough and. A, a rough time, and and these were primarily at that time. They, these were Irish ball players who, uh, who were. I mean, if they didn't play baseball, baseball didn't pay that much at that time. But if they didn't pay, play baseball, they were, uh, they were going to be in minimum wage, low paying jobs anyway. So, uh, it was kind of a fight, fight to the death for them. They were all trying to be good enough to to maintain their jobs. So. It was a, it was a crazy game, and it, I think it was pretty dangerous for umpires at the time compared to now, too, uh, because of the lack of ejection. Now, the part of the game I miss is the 
arguments between the managers and the umpires. Some managers made a life out of it. Billy Martin, Tom Lasorda, Earl Weaver. If they couldn't argue, they couldn't live. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that, there's a great video of uh, uh, of a guy chasing him around on the field. It's great. The umpire just keeps walking with his back to the manager, and this goes on for for several minutes where <laughs> where the manager just follows him and like chews him out, chews him out, chews him out, and all the umpire does is try to walk away from him. Uh, but yeah, you don't see that as much anymore. You probably get ejected now if it, if uh, you didn't go back. Although that usually would make the umpire or make the manager kick it into a new gear. Once they're ejected, they know they're going to get fined. So then they kick it up a notch. But yeah. what's, what's ruined that is we now have review, which I seem to be one of the few people who objects to the constant reviewing of the plays. Yeah, I, I kind of would be in favor of it, except that it slows down the game. And, uh, I, I think maybe the solution is that the for to, for a, a manager to ask for a review, he shouldn't be allowed to see the slow motion instant replay ahead of time. He he's got a he's got to decide in real time, just like the umpire did, whether the umpire blew the call or not, and uh, and that and that would that would have fewer reviews, and I would imagine that the managers would lose a lot more of those reviews. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot easier to win uh, a review when you've when you've seen it in in slow motion uh, and replay several times. You you pretty much know if you're gonna gonna win it or not. Uh, if they had to like like maybe the like in the NFL they had to throw in throw in that we want the review. Uh, and in the NFL they're usually watching replay as fast as they can. They have less time than they do in baseball. Uh, but I think they I think that would be really interesting if they made the managers not able to see the slow motion that they, they had to see the play at the time. And if they think that the the official blew it, then that's, that's when they have to make their decision of whether they're going to review. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. When it was a brand new concept, the replays would get shown out on the scoreboard and the crowd could all see it. And that would really weigh the odds against the umpires because the crowd would start going ballistic. Yeah, yeah. And uh I mean I think a baseball replace uh review started uh you probably remember this better than I but there was like a a few years ago there was a perfect game that got thrown away by just a terrible call on the last play of the game. Uh and I think that's when review started the the umpire just I mean it wasn't even that close uh as an umpire uh for a for a play at first base they're watching the uh base runner's foot and they're listening to the to the ball hit the glove, and if you umpire that way, uh, it's usually pretty easy to get those calls. Uh, uh, even even what they call bang bang plays, if if you're watching that foot, whether it's hit the hit first base and listening to the ball hit the glove, those are actually fairly easy calls to to make easier than than maybe uh, slide by tags and things like that where. Where the umpire doesn't know exactly what angle to get, they don't know where the runner's going to slide and uh, where the catcher might be setting up and that kind of thing. Those those calls are actually, I think, harder than than the calls at first base. But yeah, that was a 
I don't know. I don't know if you remember that perfect game that got spoiled or a no hitter. I can't even remember if it was no hitter or perfect game. It was a perfecto. That would have been the umpire was Jim Joyce. The pitcher was Armando Galarraga. And I mentioned the umpire because he wore it. He was man enough to go to that pitcher the next day and said, you know, I really screwed up and I'm sorry. You know, a lot of umpires, especially if they went up to the Ron Luciano school where Luciano was was taught by an early umpire. He said, when you're the ump, you are God. And <laughs> this Jim Joyce knew he wasn't God. He knew he'd made a mistake and he owned up to it. I don't know many umpires who would do that. Yeah, that did show a lot of class. And I think even before, I think he went back right after the game and watched the replay uh, and so like within minutes, he he knew he blew that call. And I think he actually went out and did a press conference, like immediately saying that, that he blew the call. And then, and then at the plate meeting the next day, it was, it was kind of like, uh, I, I think, I think maybe the pitcher was at the plate meeting with the umpire that, that messed the call up. And so, yeah, it got smoothed out pretty well. And all because he owned it, like you said, if he had, if he had just kind of ignored it and, uh, uh, you know, I think he, he would have probably gotten booed the rest of his career every time he took the field somewhere. Uh, I imagine he would have gotten booed by the fans. Talking to Dell Leonard Jones on the Baseball Lifer podcast. And before we wrap this one up, you've done now two poems that you've made into novels, The Cremation of Sam McGee and Casey at the Bat in the novel At the Bat, The Strikeout That Shamed America. It's on Amazon by Audible and by Kindle. Are there any other great American poems or ballads that you're looking at maybe making a story out of one day? No, I've been looking for a long time. And if anybody has a suggestion, uh, I would be glad to do it. I'm actually writing a third novel now, but it's it's not based on a poem. I'm actually uh, taking a leap and actually trying to invent a novel uh, all from scratch. So my next my next novel won't be after a poem uh but you know i would like to revisit i i'm always looking for about you know basically it needs to be a poem like a ballad that that tells a story and uh and there's a lot of them out there but i've never found one that actually uh hit me good the the cremation of sam i mean there's the shooting of dan mcgrew by robert service as well and a bunch of others and i've actually uh encapsulated uh, uh the shooting of dan mcgrew into my novel, The Cremation of Sam McGee. That 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 scene is also actually uh, in the novel. I don't know if you've ever read The Shooting of Dan McGrew. This guy comes in from 50 Below. and Yeah, they're and, uh, both Alaska stories, if I remember. Yeah, exactly. And if I, if I had one, if I was going to do it, it would be The Face on the Barroom Floor. I don't know who wrote oh. that one. Yeah, yeah. I've been to... Uh, that, that's, that's actually at a bar in Colorado. I've actually been there as a as a kid uh where that painting of the face on the barroom floor is but yeah i've considered that too that would be that would be a good one and uh it'd be good for you know i like to write historical novels too and that would have a lot of history around that as well so that's a good idea our guest on the baseball lifer podcast has been dale leonard jones the book at the bat the strikeout that shamed america and it's based on the great american poem Casey at the bat and Dell, I sure thank you for coming on the program. Thank you, Don. Enjoyed it. Back with a wrap up in a minute. 
I'm having such a problem at work. It's the second time this month. I've got two computers down, and I can't get my computer repair company to come to the office to fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies to help us. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when our computers are not working properly. I need someone who can see what's wrong and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They've been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860, courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about them on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of services. Back with you on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here. Our thanks once again to Del Leonard Jones for talking to us about how he took the poem Casey at the Bat and made a historical novel out of it. We heard at the beginning of this show the poem itself, and that was narrated by Tim Wiles, former director of research at the Baseball Hall of Fame. Their YouTube page is www.youtube.com slash baseball hall. YouTube.com slash baseball hall. You'll be able to find that poem and many, many other things the Hall of Fame has put together for YouTube. Before we sign off for today, it's been a tough week for the Yankees. Harrison Bader was injured again. And one of their prize rookies, Oswald Peraza, suffered a very badly broken ankle, which is going to cause him to lose a considerable amount of time, if not the entire 2023 baseball season. And on a much happier note, the Dodgers won their game yesterday, which is Wednesday the 3rd, as we record this on Thursday, May the 4th. The Dodgers won on Wednesday with a walk-off Grand Slam home run by Max Muncy. The walk-off Grand Slam, even in the steroid era and today's post-steroid era, is still an exceedingly rare play and really ought to be a headline, the walk-off Grand Slam. It took me some digging today to find out that yesterday's Dodgers game had ended with one. Next week, you'll be able to hear Dave Collins, who used to broadcast in the minors at the same time that I did, and who since 2004 has been broadcaster and pretty much man about everything for the Lancaster Barnstormers of the Atlantic League, one of the independent leagues. So you'll be able to hear Dave on next week's Baseball Lifer podcast. This is Don Wardlow. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.